Welcome to the NextCloud podcast. Let's talk about digital sovereignty. Hi, and welcome back to NextCloud podcast 16 today with Daphne Miller. She is support lead at NextCloud and held a TEDx talk about privacy. Hi, Daphne. Hello, Ingo. Yeah, so nice uh, having you today. And um, I wanted to talk a little bit about your work. And uh, then, of course, we will talk about your TEDx talk. Um, there was already a blog post uh, on nextcloud.com, but I think it's a really interesting topic. But first of all, what do you do at Nextcloud? At Nextcloud, I lead the support. So support is one of the main business models of Nextcloud. Um, it's super important for our organization um, and all our developers have to do support for customers. So I try to make sure that our support is of a really awesome quality, that our customers are happy and that our developers are also happy and that the processes get improved. Okay. So do you have also contact with customers yourself or how is... Uh, yes, how absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I also help out with the tickets, especially when it gets a little bit more difficult. Um, when tickets are difficult to solve or that bugs are difficult to solve, then I usually jump in to help. Okay, and what are the issues at the moment? So is this normal stuff? I don't know, my next cloud isn't working or there is a big bug somewhere or what's what? what kind of issues are there? Sometimes issues are related to the customer instances. So about 30% of the issues are caused by infrastructure problems. And there is, of course, also some, uh, sometimes some bugs that are just really hard to catch or really hard to debug. Uh, those can be anything. Uh, mm -hmm. and I then, don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit. So 40% are related to the infrastructure the customer is having, but The rest is then maybe something a bug which is caused by Nextcloud and then fixed later on. And then if I am a, a open source customer, just then then I will get the fix uh, later on um, when I update. Exactly, that's yeah. how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So if you say all or nearly all developers uh, also have to do support. Is is there, I don't know, a chat group you all come together and, and discuss a bug or how <laughs> is, <laughs> or do you have a regular meeting where you said, okay, the, you, you are doing this bug, this issue, you're doing that one, or how does this work? The tickets are first, uh, what we call triaged. So the tickets come in and everyone has a, Trias duty. So once a month, someone has a look at all the incoming tickets and we spread that across the team. And then if it's a talk issue, then it goes to the talk team. Or if it's an office issue, then it goes to the office team. And then from there on, it's mostly self-organized. So people pick up the tickets themselves that they want to work on. Uh, okay. So... I log in in the morning, see which tickets are there. And if I think, oh, that's something I like to do because that's my expertise, then I just pick it up and, yeah, start looking at it, uh, contacting the customer, 
getting feedback, what's what's the problem and stuff like that. Yes, okay. exactly like that. And we also try to do more and more pairing and knowledge sharing between more junior colleagues and people who already work for us since the beginning of times. So it also happens now more and more that people pair up with an experienced colleague to work on issues together. And that's how we try to work around knowledge concentration. And that's also how we try to scale support because Nextcloud grows super fast. And that also means that we need to prepare for a future where we have much more work. Mm -hmm. And this knowledge base, you do it also in your own Nextcloud instance or where do you do this? Is this Are there yeah. tools you use or... Yeah, we are right now working on transitioning to collectives, one of the mm -hmm. apps of our that is part of the Nextcloud package. And there we document uh, cases that we saw before that we can't solve in the code. But it's quite in the early stage. We don't have a lot yet. Okay. Yeah, about Nextcloud Collective, we talked in the last uh, podcast. So maybe uh, our listeners know this already. Uh, maybe they tried it already um and that's super cool that uh, yeah you use your own tools i mean that's dog fooding or how do we call this uh, yeah <laughs> that's really nice why why did you join Nextcloud? so are you not i i don't know how long are you working for Nextcloud? one two years or longer or no much shorter <laughs> i met Nextcloud since july so a bit more than half a year now Okay. And I joined Nextcloud because I found out about them during my academic research, which is about the future of technology and how this future could look if privacy and open source becomes really big. Uh, and there I was looking for organizations, smaller technology players who seem to have figured out how to compete against a Google or a Microsoft or other of those monopolistic tech players. And that's where I bumped into Nextcloud. And I was so excited about <laughs> how they set it up the organization because yeah. they actually manage to have a good product and a sustainable business model and happy users. Okay. And you saw, thought this, this is a cool company. I like to work there. And you applied. And exactly. <laughs> that's nice. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And you got a job. Yeah. Yeah. And coincidentally, they were looking for someone like me, and I had a contract a week later. Okay. Cool. 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 So you. you I was lucky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or good. Or yeah. Or just fit together. Sometimes it's uh, really nice. So you you studied at the University of Technology in Eindhoven, and what did you study there? I studied a program called industrial design, but it was focused not only on industrial products, but also on products that had some form of a microcontroller or software in them. So it was a study program where I didn't only learn about aesthetics or mechanical engineering, but also a bit programming and a bit about business and a bit about society, a very diverse program. And the goal of the study was always to solve societal problems through the development of smart objects and smart systems. And I was always super passionate about that. But during my master, I figured out that maybe we are causing societal problems through those smart 
products, services, and systems. I figured out that things like data collection or algorithms don't necessarily solve anything and actually cause a lot of trouble like human rights violations and discrimination and privacy. So it was a bit of a shock. <laughs> okay, so the, a little bit dystopic then. I mean, what, what are smart objects? Could you explain smart objects to me? What, what is this? For example, smart meters or your smart TV, uh, everything smart home related. But it could also extend into the city, like you have now more and more smart city projects, self-driving cars and yeah. so forth. Yes. Okay. And they are all collecting data. And for that, mm, my privacy could be yeah, in danger somehow, you think? Yeah, it's non-existent if you're being in surveillance all day. So your master thesis was about studying the role of designers in privacy. What does this mean? I mean, what what should a designer do or not do uh, for a good privacy concept? Or or uh, is this for the smart objects, I think? For me, it starts with a set of values, like the set okay. of values you see in open source or free software. Mm -hmm. Those are the kind of values that are not really discussed a lot in the design world. In the design world, a lot of things are these days uh, about accessibility or sustainability. And in my time, it used to be more also about aesthetics so that things are pretty and beautiful. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But the idea that you need to respect democratic values through your work, that's not a topic yet. And for me, it starts with the realization that we should simply stop collecting so much personal data. But that's a bit controversial because the entire field is based on the premise that big data will come with big solutions and with big opportunities. So it starts with the realization that the future of big data is zero data that we should stop collecting so much personal data and that we can look for more creative solutions outside of that. So for example, I did four design projects in my one-year thesis. The first project was in the retail industry, which is really, really data-centered right now. It's all about collecting more data, supposedly to find out what your customers want to buy and then to nudge them into buying that stuff. Mm -hmm. But what does the retailer want? Do they really want big data or do they want people to buy more? It's the latter. Now, and then you can brainstorm and use the creativity that designers have no lack of to find other ways in which we can get people to buy more stuff that don't require so much personal data. And that's the thinking switch that I argued for. Assume that you don't need the data. What do people, what do your customers really want? What do your users really want? And what are creative ideas to get there? And did you get through to some of the people there in your projects? <laughs> well, I graduated with a 9.5 out of 10. So eventually I convinced many people about the approach, but it was a hard road. Okay. It was hard because my teachers were very data-centered. And it was hard because my mentor was a designer for Google. So that, of course, clashed also a bit, although it was always super interesting to hear about his perspective and how he would approach things. But it's a bit controversial. 
it still is. If things are now about privacy a few years after GDPR started, it's about how to enable users to better find their privacy settings. And I'm like, come on, we can do much more than that. Hmm. Not not just uh, having a, a system and trying not to give them much data. So um, then the other way around, just having a concept that the um, that the tools aren't collecting data on their own so much because it's not needed. Exactly. It it gave some hilarious situations. For example, one of the design projects was together with a cost with a real life customer. It was a customer who wanted to develop services to improve the health of people who work in the office. And this customer decided that the future of health in the office was going to be determined by smartwatches. Mm -hmm. So to measure how many steps people take, how much coffee they drink, and then give people personalized health advice. And of course, if you really want people to have a better health in the office, you don't need smartwatches. You can also discuss toxic management. So it gave really hilarious outcomes. Yeah, and I mean, I have a smartwatch too, but the smartwatch is just connected to my uh, smartphone and there it's just not connected with the cloud. Just on this smartphone, there is an app and there I can see how many steps I took yesterday, but it's not synced to any cloud except maybe my own next cloud. Um, but I think you can also build tools and smart objects that help you so i like to see how many steps i have taken today or yesterday but it's not necessary to share this with the whole world exactly it can be designed in a very different way but still the discussion around smartwatches is very technocentric it assumes that technology is going to solve the problem of bad health But to be honest, that is nonsense because there are so many different ways to work on your health that are possibly cheaper and more effective. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's nice for your inner, for your, I also like to see how many steps I took on a day, but that's more to satisfy my inner nerd yeah. than to actually work on my health. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> I don't make more steps than. I would without the watch, I think. That's true. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. this is the ironic part, right? We sell the smartwatch as if it's going to save our lives. And Apple subsidizes health research where it claims to save lives. But if you look into the details, it's all exaggerated and nonsense. Why would we trust Apple with this kind of medical type research? Uh, I mean, if... If, uh, if Australia publishes a health article about that Kiwis are going to prevent cancer, then we also don't take them serious. Then we also know that there is interest involved. But if Apple publishes an article that their smartwatch saved a lot of lives, then we suddenly all believe them. Uh, uh, but it's a big company. It really annoys me. <laughs> it's a big company. They know what they're doing. No, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. And it also sparks this technocentric stuff is super fascinating for me and my research because 
The question remains, do we really want to reach the objectives that the technology can offer us? So for example, with a smartwatch, if you would give everyone a smartwatch, subsidize it, I don't know, and then say, uh, go and work on your health, then you're also medicalizing very healthy patients. Mm. Do we want people to worry so much about their health if they are actually super healthy, if they have no complaints whatsoever? The, the effects of techno, technocentric solutionism goes beyond that it's stupid. But maybe, uh, I mean, there are, there are rumors that they can detect something you wouldn't know because you think you're healthy, but then they the Apple Watch is saying, oh, your heart is doing stuff that shouldn't, but you don't but feel Ingo, it. But Ingo, Ingo. <laughs> What? No. No. What? Which which demographic has the most heart problems? Uh, the fifty plus. <laughs> I don't know. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> Elder people. Yeah. Yes, and which people use smartwatches? Uh, me and you, and younger <laughs> ones especially. The chance that we have heart problems is absolutely minimal. Yeah. And if we have it, they won't be able to treat it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Do you get the point? Yeah, I, sure. But yeah. <laughs> Doing this research is about figuring out the nonsense. You give it TEDx talk about privacy is progress. What do you mean with privacy is progress? That by collecting less personal data, we will get more and better innovation, healthier business models, and eventually more human progress as well. Okay, so why? Why? Uh, I mean, I could also argue, I mean, the, the, the big tech is doing good. They are also innovative. They're doing a lot of stuff and bring me smartwatches and, and <laughs> feel-good apps and stuff like that. And it's all really good. Uh, uh, new cars and I don't know. It, isn't, is this also progress? Is this also fine? Well, I argue that this is not really progress because those services and companies only exist by doing surveillance on people like you and me on our insanely large scale. So they breach the human right of privacy and I find it a bit ironic that they claim to bring progress by violating human rights on such large scale. There are more arguments to it because, of course, you could continue to argue like, well, but their services are nice and good and good to use. Well, totally agree. Their engineers do a good job. But the insane focus on that more data and more AI will bring us more progress somehow is just not true if you look at the facts. Um, For example, there are so many industries where they think they could innovate and reach their goals with more data. But if you look at the details, then those projects are very costly and don't really bring so many measurable results. And they also don't really solve the root cause of a problem. Mm. Data, the, the reason of any problem is often not a lack of data. The reason that you have a bad health is not the lack of a smartwatch. The reason that we have terrorism is not the lack of surveillance. The reason that our retailer doesn't sell a lot is not the lack of 
surveillance on people on the internet and the lack of Facebook advertisements. So by the focus by focusing so much on technology-centered solutions, we no longer really look at what the problem really is. One of the examples in my TED talk where I give is, um, of course, you always have this argument, yeah, we cannot have a safer society if we don't give up our privacy. That's one of the hardest arguments that I got during my research. But is it really the reason that people commit crimes because they are not being surveyed? That's a really outdated perspective from the previous century. And latest research in human science fields, like criminology, sociology, show that by treating people better, solving problems like poverty, um, making sure that prisons are designed in such a way that people can reintegrate into society by giving them proper job training, treating them acceptably, that showed considerable considerable results and you can better invest all that money in all those surveillance projects into projects like that who are proven to be effective because surveillance is not and you don't um yeah if you are surveyed all the time you're not yourself or you think you need to adapt to this of how the outside is looking at you and not what you're feeling and want to do so that's yeah. that's a bad point yeah You, you said privacy is progress and uh, companies should respect uh, the privacy, should um, yeah, do tools and stuff that it's privacy uh, enhanced. But what is big tech like Google or Facebook and so on uh, isn't doing that. So they're gathering all the data. So what is what is a company that is uh, maybe a good privacy company what what uh, does does this mean what do they do um, other than the big companies which are just collecting all the data and doing stuff with this well many of the good companies that i've observed um, first of all have a value statement that they don't collect the personal data of their users Companies like Nextcloud do that, but also, for example, the navigation app Magic Earth or the operating system eFoundation, they do a really good job. Then secondly, they, of course, also need a solid business model because usually they don't like getting money from online personalized advertising. Um, and usually you see that these organizations are either non-profit and they follow a bit the Wikipedia model where they rely on donations, or they have enterprise licenses where they work with larger organizations and help them with their technical expertise. So that's a bit the model of Nextcloud and Magic Earth as well. It's it's one one point you you made in your in your targets also that don't have venture capital or not so many venture capital so the growth is sustainable then i don't know going to to ex yeah. uh, venture capital firms getting a lot of money burning this money to have a, a platform which is then a um, which maybe become a, a monopoly yeah, i think you called this platform yes, exactly. capitalism or something like that Maybe you can <laughs> explain this a little bit more. Yes. 
So people are often shocked when I say that Nextcloud makes more profit than Uber or Spotify mm -hmm. together. Why? <laughs> yeah. Because Uber and Spotify make insane amount of losses. Really insane amount. Uber had one year where they lost one million US dollars per hour. <laughs> That's and then at the same time, That's we crazy. somehow <laughs> believe, yeah, what is their strategy, right? Was my question. Because we all believe that Uber is a super successful technology yeah. company, but they are not successful in their profit. <laughs> and I figured out that most technology companies that keep up this idea that big data and AI is going to be so big, eh, if... if Small organizations think about technology. They are scared of organizations like Uber, Airbnb, those companies that seemingly out of nowhere disrupted society and entire industries. And then they think, oh, we also need to have an app because otherwise we can't withstand the competition with Uber or Amazon or name it, Spotify. But the question is, do you really need an app or do you need venture capital? Because Uber doesn't have a sustainable business model. I wonder if they would be successful with their app, if they would have to ask regular taxi pricing. Probably not. The only reason they are so big is because mm -hmm. they are super cheap. So they make a lot of losses. Yeah, yeah. So, so they have a lot of money from elsewhere and burning it through this. But there is no concept or no um revenue concept behind this that it ever yeah there is a revenue concept but not a profit concept revenue is the money that all the money that comes in and profit is the money that's left after you mm -hmm. detract your costs and they make much more costs than they earn so then you have pro then you make losses and that's what you see in the smaller technology players who value privacy like nextcloud but also other privacy organizations they cannot they don't have venture capital so they don't need to grow big fast they don't try to be the cheapest in the market i mean nextcloud does not try to be necessarily cheaper than microsoft because we can't afford that we need to have a sustainable business model where people are yep. actually willing to pay for yep. otherwise it's not going to work and this is what brings me a lot of hope Because it means that smaller players can also grow big without so much dependency and without having the urge to focus only on growing insanely fast. I mean, of course, there needs to be growth, but it doesn't have to be on the scale of Uber. Okay. And, and Nextcloud is, is, uh, is a company that's proving that this is possible, right? So you can get venture capital, grow fast and burn money, but maybe this this company is going down in i don't know 10 years if it is not bought by microsoft or google or facebook or i don't know yeah yeah exactly I mean, this, this is not a good exit strategy i mean maybe for for the people uh founding the firm yeah, yeah they get rich but for the society uh it's not a good concept Yeah, exactly. And what you then also get is that many tech startups actually don't have the ambition to become big themselves. They have the yeah. ambition to be bought by Google. And then you can start to question whether that is a good thing or not. Because organizations like Google, Microsoft, Apple, they buy so many companies. I mean, Google wouldn't have much more than only a search engine. 
if they wouldn't yeah. buy other companies. I mean, Android it was also bought. Exactly. Even AdSense, their business model, <laughs> even AdSense is bought. They would be nothing more than a search engine if they wouldn't grow through acquisitions. And we often think that these big companies are so innovative, but they are not necessarily that innovative with only their technical expertise that they have in-house. They are mostly innovative through acquisitions, through financial innovation. Most of the services, Android, uh, a lot of apps, they also bought Fitbit recently, uh, Waze, the navigation app that suddenly became popular. Uh, they tried to have an Amazon competition, Google Marketplace. They don't innovate that much themselves. And this causes monopolization because they own everything. Back in the days, it wasn't allowed for a train for a freight company to also own the trains or the tra or the train line or uh, the goods that were shipped because of uh, because of antitrust. And now we get that this is not really counting mm. in computer science, and that's bad for innovation because what you need for innovation is competition. So, what should the users or the customers, so me and you? Than do if not I don't know, using Google and Android and and all the things you just mentioned. Well, you could consider to stop with using Google Facebook services, but of course, that's for many people a bit challenging. But at least you could start with transitioning to software that is within your range. Like you could maybe change the operating system of your phone if you're not too attached to that, or you could uh, switch from. Google Docs or Google Workplace to a service like Nextcloud, or you could switch your navigation software, perhaps. Um, there are so many alternatives to all the services that they deliver. Um, so try to switch where you can. And if you use Google, then at least have an ad blocker so they don't get yeah. money from you. Also, maybe, I don't know, don't put your email all in <laughs> one big place or one big company. I mean, also there are email providers okay you have maybe to pay for but uh, then you know where where the, where the data is and not that you are the yeah product <laughs> and your emails are scanned and and stuff like that yeah. so it's this also yeah it's a, it's a big pain at the moment so all people are going just to to microsoft office uh, 365 or or Google uh, putting their emails and their documents all there and don't think about having to pay for and, and uh, maybe thinking a little bit more, but having in not, not just in, in one place at a big company, but um, here a little bit, there a little bit, because I just read an article also on, on nextcloud.com uh, that Maybe your account is suddenly disabled, your Google account. So I don't know. An algorithm just said, no, yeah. you did something stupid. And now we disable your account. You can't get your mails. You can't get the, the documents you just edited. I don't know. Maybe it's your thesis or uh, <laughs> something uh, else, and you're blocked now. That's really a problem. Yeah, 
<laughs> yeah, or getting in touch. And if you find them, getting in touch with them, yeah. writing an email. It's a bot coming back to you. <laughs> and um, <laughs> yeah, it's not gonna work. <laughs> yeah, we are very dependent on them. And it's not even true that you always have to pay for alternatives. Proton Mail, for example, is free, uh, at least to a certain extent. Yeah, I can recommend to delete your old mails as well because that's better for the environment. <laughs> it's often underestimated what the impact is of data collection on the environment as well. All those servers need to run and the amount of electricity that they use is really unbelievably high. The data centers in the Netherlands, for example, used in 2019 already more electricity than our railways. So even if you have a limited account where you only have, I don't know, how much storage space, uh, you should still be able to get around pretty easily. And attachments could also go in your next cloud. I mean, there are also uh, add-ons like in Thunderbird. You can say if it is above five megabytes <laughs> or something like that, then upload it to the next cloud and put a link in. So that's really cool. Exactly. My recommendation from Nextcloud is to use Nextcloud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah sorry okay it's a obviously <laughs> obviously this is a next cloud podcast we're talking about the next cloud <laughs> i mean there are also other pro <laughs> products uh, you already uh, talked about protomail or or um yeah open street maps rather than using google maps all the time and stuff like that um i mean <laughs> i mean it's it's uh But we we shouldn't give all our private data to to big companies. I mean, the, the classical argument is why not? I have nev nothing to hide. I can do this. Well, why why shouldn't we do this? I think we explained it a little bit. Yeah, is there anything else from your TED talk we need to cover? Are there still key points missing? You made well what you said just now about um i have nothing to hide why is that an issue yeah um in my TED talk i also explain like well you don't know if you have nothing to hide if you a don't know what's known about you and b if you don't know what they do with that so one example that i give in the TED talk is that um the facebook algorithm now it's called meta but uh, it was facebook back then um, how they analyze your data? Well, when I quit Facebook, um, I downloaded my data first and I was really shocked by the kind of advertising labels that I saw connected to my name. There were really mistakes in that even on what kind of religion I would have to what kind of music I liked. Um, and those are really personal things, right? Um, And then I figured out there was a paper where they collaborated with Cambridge, with the University of Cambridge to figure out, okay, what can we do with people's likes to learn more about who these people are? And the correlations that they use are so random. One of the relations was, for example, that if you like Halloween, then they decide that you are white. They also had certain correlations for black people. And there's also for different religions. Of course, some labels are obvious. If you like the Ramadan, then obviously they can conclude what your religion is. But there are also really subtle things. Like if you like curly fries, then you are apparently 
then you apparently have a high IQ. Oh, I, I like those them. I like them. So... I like them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those things are so random. There is no way you can know what is known about you. Mm. And it might also be wrong. Mm. And having labels about your sexuality or your religion is just always wrong. That can always be used against you. How was your talk received? Uh, did, did you get a lot of feedback? It was fun because the talk was focused on an audience who are not so busy with privacy per se. And I think I managed to explain why it's such a fascinating topic and why privacy might become really big. Um, I know that my family didn't really change their technology usage. My dad is still using Google <laughs> and still has yeah. Facebook. Okay. So I don't know about whether I really convinced people to switch. Probably not. Um, but well, I don't give up. <laughs> okay, that's not a reason to stop, uh, to stop the fight, um, the fight for privacy. I don't know what should other people do if they want also try to convince others to think about privacy and uh, consider using other products maybe what should they do is there something you could recommend i mean obviously using nextcloud yeah we're in the podcast but yeah 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 well for example you could try to switch to signal instead of whatsapp um, and my partner had quite a smart approach to that. He has a really lovely family, but they don't necessarily understand technology very well. And he uh, switched them all to Signal um, by forwarding them one of the uh, news articles when there was such a big problem around their new terms of services. So he told them, hey, I am going to stop with WhatsApp. Um Here's a link to a news article. Uh, I disagree with their new terms of services. Let's continue on the app signal. I will help you with installing it. Mm. And I think it was smart because he linked to an external source that they trusted. And it worked. His entire family is now on signal. So I can recommend such an approach. Okay, so I should try to convince my family members using other technologies but is there anything else i don't know can i join a group or uh how do i yeah help people yeah using the right things and not just putting all their data into google facebook and co i don't know do you know well i any? recommend you it depends also on what your profession is and what you do in a daily life for example If you are a teacher, you could try to convince your school to switch to other types of software. Yep. Because if you can do something like that and stop maybe using WhatsApp in your school or stop using Teams in your school, then you make a huge impact because all those kids then learn to use a different software on a daily basis, plus their parents as well. Um, similarly, if you work for another type of company where you could maybe convince to switch people. And you could also become politically active. Privacy becomes more and more a political topic. It, of course, depends a little bit on where you are. But in the Netherlands, and I know in Germany and Belgium, and I know in France and Spain as well, it's becoming a huge topic where uh, municipalities are collecting much and much more data and where GDPR becomes much more enforced. So you could also consider to become politically active. 
for example, when my municipality wanted to do stuff with big data, I went to them and I gave them a 15-minute lecture about that they shouldn't want big data in the first place. They said stuff and nonsense like, yeah, we want to improve the service for our citizens with more data. And then I gave them 10 ideas that didn't require data that would improve the service to their citizens in a much better way. And, and maybe uh, you could look for those debates as well. And also maybe a cheaper way. So as you explained already. <laughs> just, Absolutely. Yeah, big data, gathering data, having a new platform, something like that. It's it's cost. It, it, it's not, maybe it's not good <laughs> uh, after that. I don't know. Yeah, those projects are really, really, Expensive. really costly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you can do something. So just talk to your family members, talk to other people, talk to students, I don't know, study the right things, uh, work for companies, or if you are working for a company, convince your management, um, having uh, privacy-focused apps uh, and products, I think this is something everybody can do. Talk to politicians. Um, if there's something, I don't know, in your legislative um, you can talk to your politicians that are supposed to be for you uh, in your parliament uh, or supposed to be <laughs> yeah <laughs> sometimes I think uh, <laughs> they, they don't do supposedly. this <laughs> <laughs> sometimes I think they're just supposed to be there not doing the right things but um, maybe some sometimes we can convince them to do the right things Yeah, exactly. And remember, it's not about convincing people to use different services. It's about explaining a new vision for technology. It's about making people understand that the future is not going to be big data. The future, at least in Europe, is going to be zero data. There is absolutely no progress to be expected from more surveillance technologies. And I think it starts with that. If people no longer believe in these fake premises then it will be easier to stop with them that's enough for today uh, i hope everybody who listened has uh, something to think about uh how they how they use apps how they can maybe convince others uh how we get there to the zero data uh era i don't know um thank you daphne that you explain to us um, yeah, how privacy is progress and uh, maybe we will get there in the future having a zero data. Give it a few decades. We will get there sooner than you think. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Inga. Hopefully. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.